Well, this morning we have an opportunity to hear from one of our missionaries. If you were in the first hour, you heard a, a report, a missionary report from Ty uh, concerning the, the Friends of Israel uh, ministry in Las Vegas. Uh, this morning, um, for the, the church hour, he will not be giving a report, so if you missed it, well, you missed it. Uh, this morning, he is, he, is, he is opening the Word of God to us t- together as, as we worship together this morning. We are here to worship Jesus, and so Ty is coming to, to share uh, the Word with us. Uh, he does have a, a table in the, uh, in the foyer if uh, you would like to learn more about his ministry uh, with Friends of Israel. Uh, meet his family. Uh, Ty, uh, his wife, Lissy, is here this morning with him, as well as their two children, Charlotte and Emery. And uh, they've, uh, this is the first time we've gotten to meet them, and so, uh, not Lissy, but the, the children. And so we're, uh, we're thankful that they are here uh, today, and we're thankful for what God is, God is doing in, in uh, Friends of Israel. One of the best ways for you to catch up, like I, I joked a little bit about, about missing out on the Sunday School Hour, uh, but uh, Ty does a, a very good job of uh, sending updates by email. And so sometimes when missionaries come and they ask for you to sign up for their uh, newsletter or something like that, uh, you may or may not get an email from them. Uh, Ty does a very good job of keeping you updated and sharing what God is doing there. So that is a a really good uh, way to to stay in touch uh, with what God is doing in Las Vegas. That being said, Ty, come share God's word with us this morning, please. Good morning. Why don't we pray? Father, this morning we come together not as an audience, but Lord, to worship you as the audience. You're the audience of one. I pray that as we open your word this morning that we would put aside the cares of of our lives that are happening right now, the good and the bad, and that we would instead turn our attention to you as we see Christ in your scripture. Father, I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts, in our minds, as we hear your word preached, that you would apply it to our lives, that you would change us into the image of your son, that we would become more like him each day, to your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. If you would, turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, we'll be getting in verse 13, and probably a passage you're familiar with. It picks up at the very end of Passover. Passover, uh, even to this day, is a major uh, festival or holiday, a holy day in uh, the Jewish world. And these, this Passover, however, was not like any other Passover. During this Passover week, we had the one that we believed was the Messiah. The Jewish people, some of them believed was the Messiah, was crucified by the Roman government. He had been in the grave for three days. As we're going to see, the disciples were not men who had a lot of confidence that the Messiah was going to rise again as he said he would. Their faith was wavering. We begin in verse 13. It says, And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, two of them. Uh, these are not the, of the, well, the original 12. Uh, Judas, at this point, is dead, and so we now have 11. These are not two of the 11. These are uh, the broader group of disciples who would follow Christ throughout his ministry. 
some commentators think that maybe this is a husband and wife. This is a couple. And they're leaving Jerusalem at the end of the Passover. Others think it's just two uh, friends leaving the town. Either way, think about what these disciples had witnessed not only just in the past week, but depending on how long they had been following Jesus, maybe even three years, they had witnessed the life and ministry of Jesus. They heard his claims to Messiahship. They saw his miracles. They listened to him teach. They heard the promises that the kingdom was at hand. And then they saw him betrayed by Judas, rejected by the Jewish leadership, and then beaten and executed by the Roman government. Verse 14, and they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. Of course they were, wouldn't you be? You just experienced a Passover like no other Passover. The one who you thought was the Messiah, the one that you had spent years with, possibly, was killed. Your, your expectations of who the Messiah would be and what he would do were dashed. They're now laying in a, in a tomb and so they're confused, they're bewildered, probably disenchanted. Verse 17 says they're sad. I can't help but think what they may have been thinking as they're talking about these things. I wonder if maybe like Pontius Pilate, they were asking themselves, what is truth? They had just been following the one who claimed to be the resurrection and the life the one who was promised that he was the way, the truth, the life, and then truth ends up being crucified? What is truth? Incidentally, that's a question our world is asking, isn't it? In fact, we live in a, what's called a postmodern culture. Postmodernism says there is no truth. Modernism said there's probably truth, but good luck finding it. Postmodernism says there is no truth, right? So the world is saying that same thing. Pfft, what's truth? There's no truth. You go to the university, uh, where I went to university, secular campus, they're not going to teach you the word of God, are they? They're not going to say, you know, there's an objective standard of truth out there. No. And so, our world's hoping in everything besides the answer. Critical race theory. You've heard of critical race theory. It's the idea that that the, the haves versus the have-nots, and, and there's a reason for that. It's because of, of uh, racial inequality, and we need the masses to rise up against the, the, those in charge. That's going to solve our problem if we can do that. Joe Biden is going to solve our problems. Donald Trump is going to solve our problems. We are going to solve our problems. That's the answer. It's, our question, it's a question our, our friends are asking, our neighbors. It's probably a question that some of you are asking. Maybe you're not a believer today. You're saying, what is truth? Is, is there anything that I can hang my hat on at the end of the day, something that's really going to last? What is truth? Well, their answer is in verse 15, isn't it? While they were talking and discussing, who comes? Jesus himself approaches and began traveling with them. Here he is. Here's truth embodied. See, earlier that Sunday morning, a group of women went to the tomb, and they expected that they were going to prepare the body. Now, they didn't embalm like we did. Um, in fact, even today, Jewish people, they do not embalm. They prepare the body. And these ladies 
That's what they were going to do. Sabbath is over. Saturday night at sundown. Sunday morning we'll go and we'll prepare the body for its final burial. But they didn't end up preparing a body, did they? In fact, there was no body to prepare. It's gone. They see the tomb, the, the, the stone at the tomb is rolled away and they see more than that, don't they? They see these angelic beings, these messengers, and the messengers say, he's not here. Why? For he is risen. But these men didn't believe it. In fact, most of the disciples didn't believe it. And so in verse 16, it says, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Now, this is an interesting passage. When we look at, at, at Christ and how he interacts with these people, there is, um, it might sound a little sacrilegious, I don't mean it that way, but there's some theatrics on Jesus' part. He's going to play them a little bit. And there's a reason for it. It's not just to play games. Before we get to that, why, why were their eyes prevented from seeing Jesus. Isn't that the question that presents itself there? Why are their eyes blinded? Well, this is called a divine passive. Simply means that God is the one blinding them. He's blinding them from seeing who Jesus is, that this stranger walking with them is the very one they're talking about. Well, th there's a reason for that. First, in, throughout Scripture, there's a general uh, principle that God is not under any obligation to give more revelation or more light of truth if you've rejected the truth he's already given you. In Romans 1, we read where Paul, God through Paul, says that creation testifies of the Godhead, doesn't it? Now, you're not going to look at the trees and understand the Trinity. You're not going to look at the, the, the created order and say, you know what? There is a savior out there. No, but it's enough that, that it generally will show you there is a creator, there is order, there's someone who made us that we are accountable to. But it also says, what did man do? Instead of worshiping the creator, we worshiped the created things, didn't we? We rejected the general revelation God gave us, and so what did he do? He said he turned them over to the deceitfulness of their heart. So God doesn't always, he doesn't necessarily have to give us more revelation. He graciously does often. I'm thankful for that. But that's at play here. Also, we see this in verse 25. Um, we will see it. There's unbelief. In verse 25, Jesus rebukes these men. He says, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Slow of heart to believe. Unbelief is an enemy, isn't it? Unbelief in the heart of man will prevent him from seeing the Messiah, who he needs. And in this encounter, Jesus is going to draw them along. He's going to draw them along with some theatrics. He's going to play with them a little bit until the point where they get there and they realize that they're blind and then they see. Look at verse 17. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? Does Jesus know what words they're exchanging? Yes, right? He is God. 
He is God. He knows what they're talking about. I had a professor uh, at, a, at a college I, I was at for a brief time. We had a class, or a, part of the class was reading the Bible as literature, which is always dangerous, isn't it? Because the Bible is so much more than literature, and when you read it just as literature, it reduces it down. And that's what happened. He, we were reading in the book of Genesis. You remember in the, in the garden, right after the fall, what does God say to Adam and Eve? He says, where are you? And, you know, the professor, he said, isn't that amazing? Supposedly God is omniscient, and yet he's asking Adam and Eve where they are. He obviously is not omniscient. Is that the point? No. You know, throughout Scripture, God, who is all-knowing, asks people questions to reveal their hearts. He asks Adam and Eve, where are you? Why? So that they would admit and they would recognize that their sin has just separated them. They are now lost. That's, that's why he's asking, where are you? Remember Jesus? He asked Peter. He said, who do men say that I am? And Peter said, well, some say you're this person. Some say you're like this person. And then what does he do? He narrows it down. He said, but Peter, who do you say that I am? That question is going to reveal the answer to that question is going to reveal a lot about Peter's belief, isn't it? And what does Peter say? You are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus also asked Martha a question. You remember when Lazarus dies? And Jesus does not uh, make his way to Bethany right away so that he can, he can perform a miracle. He waits. He, goes, he takes a longer route. And he gets there. And, and Martha says, Lord... If you had been here just a few days prior, you could have healed him. You could have saved him. My brother would, would not have died. And Jesus begins talking about the resurrection. And she says, yeah, yeah, I believe the resurrection. I know it's the Jewish thing. We believe in the resurrection. And he says, no, I am the resurrection and the life. And then what does he ask her? Do you believe this? And then she gives that great confession. Yes, I believe you are the Messiah. So the Lord will use these questions in, in this instance as well to reveal the hearts of those he's talking to. Look at their response in verse 18. Uh, well, let me just back up. It says in, at the end of verse 17, and they stood still looking sad. That tells us a lot about what they're talking about. They're talking about their hopes have been dashed, haven't they? And so in 18, one of them named Cleopas so the only one whose name we know, answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened in these days? Imagine a few days after 9-11, 2001, somebody comes up to a person on the streets of New York, looks around and says, hey, what's going on here? What they say? They say, are you the only one in New York? Are you the only one in the whole world who doesn't know what just happened here? Or maybe in a more contemporary sense, we'd say about COVID, someone would say, what's with all the masks? <laughs> Do you not know what's just happened in the last year and a half? The disciples are astounded by this question, but Jesus in verse 19 continues with this. He's, he's going to go deeper with them. He's, going to, he's inviting them by his questions. No, you tell me more. What just happened? Verse 19, and he said to them, what things? What things? The interpretation 
Their interpretation of the events they're going to talk about will reveal much about their hearts. And so they said to him, in verse, continuing in verse 19, they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. Jesus the Nazarene. These men had followed Jesus. But when they're asked, who is he? What are you talking about? Here's what they say. They say, first of all, Jesus the Nazarene. He's from Nazareth. Okay, we got that. Who was a prophet, mighty indeed. Was Jesus a prophet? Yes, he was. Back in Deuteronomy, God said that there would come a prophet who would rise like unto Moses. And when you read the early parts of the Gospels, the Jewish people are asking, hey, is this the prophet? Because they knew the prophet was to come. They didn't understand the prophet was the same as the Messiah, but he is. So they understood, well, there is the prophet. Jesus is a prophet. But is he more than a prophet? Yes. See, our Muslim friends would say, Jesus is a prophet. But believing Jesus is a prophet is not saving faith, is it? Believing that Jesus is a prophet is a part of the puzzle because he is, but he is more than a prophet. And they say he is mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people. He's a great teacher. He's a great miracle worker. He's done some wonderful things, hasn't he? Do you hear about how he turned water into wine or how he fed the 5,000? He did miracles. But he was more than a miracle worker. And then they say in, how, in verse 20, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. He was an executed man. Good prophet, good teacher, executed. But look at 21. But we were hoping that it was he who is going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. What are they saying? Well, it sounds terrible to us to say this, but they were essentially saying, yeah, good teacher, good prophet. He died, and he was a false messiah. We were hoping he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. What do you read in there? But he was not, right? Besides, it's the third day since all these things happened. He's, he's dead. He's gone. We know enough about biology to know he's not coming back. What was Israel waiting for? What were the Jewish people waiting for in the Messiah? Well, we're not going to take the time to read these today, but you might jot them down. Psalm 2 and Zechariah 9. These are just two passages of many in the Old Testament that describe the Messiah as being a king who comes in, he conquers the enemies of the Jewish people, he casts down anti-Semitism, and he brings the kingdom into the world. Peace, justice, tranquility, everything that the Jewish people are longing for, he does it. They were right and expecting that. That's what the prophecies indicate. However, that's not the whole story, is it? The Messiah is going to suffer and die. 
One of my rabbi friends, I asked him a while ago, I said, well, who do you believe the Messiah is? If he's not, the, if he's not Jesus, who is he? And he says, I don't even know if there is a Messiah. He said, probably, he might not even be a real person. It might be just a utopian age that man will bring about. The Orthodox Jewish position is this. This is from a, an Orthodox uh, source. It says, the final Messiah will be the greatest leader and political genius that the world has ever seen. He will likewise be the wisest man ever to have lived. He will put these extraordinary talents to use to precipitate a worldwide revolution which will bring perfect social justice to humanity and influence all people to serve God with a pure heart. As the Messiah's powers develop, so will his fame. The world will begin to recognize his profound wisdom and come to seek his advice. He will then teach all mankind to live in peace and follow God's teachings. Basically true, but there's a big part missing. Did you read anything about blood? No. Anything, read anything about the atonement? No, that Isaiah 53 puts forth. And so therefore, Jesus does not fit into their theological grid. Their expectation of who the Messiah was going to be was only the victorious Messiah. They thought nothing of the atonement. Well, continuing in verse 22, it says, But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. So they say, these, these ladies, they went to the tomb and he wasn't there and these, they claim these angels said something to them. And some of our friends went and they looked, at, they looked in the tomb and sure enough, the body is gone, but we don't know where he went. They're completely discounting the testimony of the women, aren't they? That the angels said this to them. Maybe there's a lesson in there for us men. I don't know. So the women say the tomb is empty. The angel says Jesus is alive, but the disciples say we didn't see him. They're still hopeless. Keep your finger in Luke, but turn over with me just for a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse, beginning in verse 14. You want to talk about hopelessness. Have you ever felt hopeless? I felt hopeless before. I faced a situation that I thought, I just can't accomplish this. There's no way I can get out of this cir these circumstances. Well, 1 Corinthians 15 gives us the real definition of hopelessness. Look at verse 14. We're, we're breaking in, but Paul says, And if Christ, or Messiah, has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Messiah, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Messiah has been raised. And if Messiah has not been raised, your faith is worthless. What's the last part? This sends shivers down our spines as believers. He says, if, excuse me, for if the dead are not raised, not even Messiah has been raised, and if Messiah has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then you and I, we should be at brunch right now. What are we doing here? We are the most 
pitiful people if we, our hope is in a dead man. And indeed, that's what the, the text says in verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Messiah have perished. So those loved ones who had the hope that Christ, in Christ, they were looking forward to heaven, and when they died, they were buried, but you knew they were in heaven. God says, if Christ didn't die, or excuse me, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, your loved ones were hopeless too, just like you. If we have hoped in Messiah in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. And isn't that true? If we're living our lives today for Christ, really living our lives for him, sharing the gospel, living a holy life for God, and when this life is over, that's it, we're wasting our lives. And that's where these disciples are. Turn back to Luke 24, picking up in verse 25. You see, these, these men thought they were fools because they had followed a false Messiah. We had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. He didn't. He's dead. He's been in the ground for three days. We're fools. Verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, no, you're not fools because you believed in Christ. You're fools because you did not believe everything the prophets said. One of the most scathing rebukes that Jesus used throughout his ministry with his fellow Jewish people was this. Haven't you read your Bible? Don't you know what the Bible says? I gave this book to you. I revealed it on Mount Sinai. There was smoke and flames and you saw it and you don't know what your own Bible says? He says this to the Pharisees. Remember that? He says, you're mad that my disciples are picking grains of, of wheat on Shabbat? Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread? Have you not read? Remember when the chief priests were upset because children were, were proclaiming him, they were saying that he is the son of David and they're praising Jesus and they got mad at that. And Jesus says, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? Haven't you read that in your Bibles? You're the teachers, you don't know this? Then of course there's the incident with Nicodemus. Nicodemus goes to Jesus at night, secretly, and Jesus explains these things to him. And then he says, I don't understand this. What, what do you mean born again? And Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? He didn't just say, aren't you a good Bible teacher? No, he says, you're, the, you're like the chief teacher. You're supposed to be leading these people. That you're supposed to be leading the Jewish people and you don't know these things? Haven't you read? You know, might the Lord rebuke us in the same way as believers today? Oh, we're saved, I'm not saying that, but might he chasten us a little bit? Might he say, you're dismayed at the results of an election? Haven't you read that I'm the one who raises up kings and tears them down? You're anxious about your livelihood and where your next meal is gonna come from, but haven't you read that I'm the one who clothes the, or feeds the birds, clothes the flowers, the fields with the flowers? You won't love unlovely people. You won't love those who hate you and persecute you. Didn't you read that while you were yet a sinner, 
I died for you? It wasn't after. It's while you were sinning, while you were ignorant of these things. So God is not pleased when those who should know his word don't. That should be a lesson to us. I know it is to me. It's very convicting. But notice where Jesus points them. Looking at verse 26, he says, let me get to the right page. Was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He points them to the word of God, doesn't he? He's saying, haven't you read these things? You should know these things. And then he says, okay, I'm going to show you these things from the Bible. Um, do you remember the account in Luke 16 where there's the, some people think it's a parable. I don't think it's a parable. I think it's a true account where there's the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus is a poor man, but he's righteous in the eyes of God. There's the rich man who is wealthy, but an unrighteous man. And one goes to, for our purposes, we'll say he goes to hell, one goes to heaven, or Abraham's bosom. And there's this gulf separating them. And he's in, the rich man is in torment. And the righteous man, the Lazarus, he's in heaven. He's sitting with Abraham, Father Abraham. And what does the rich man say to Abraham? He says, send someone to my brothers so that they don't end up in this place of torment too. And what does Abraham say? He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Even if someone rises from the dead. This is proven here, isn't it, in this passage. Here they have the one, the only one who's ever risen from the dead walking with them, and there's no recognition. They have not believed. Let's just take a moment and talk about experience versus truth. In the, in the church today, Big C Church, Christendom, there's a lot of emphasis on our experience. My wife and I were a part of a church for a short time in Las Vegas. They changed the terminology from come to the worship service to we want to welcome you to our worship experience. You see how the focus has changed? It's gone from come to the service to exalt God to now come and experience something. A lot of our music, what we call Christian music, has very little doctrinal substance. It's highly emotive, but there's not a lot of substance. It's going to take us back to the scripture. Often messages or sermons are delivered powerfully, but shallow in content. You know, our experiences as believers, experiences must be subordinate to and informed by God's word, not the other way around, right? Our experiences have to be interpreted through the lens of scripture. We don't interpret scripture through our experience. Well, I feel this way, therefore I'm going to interpret this verse means this to me. Well, no offense, but it doesn't really matter what it means to you, does it? It matters what it means to God. What did God mean when he wrote it? And that's what happened with these men, these disciples. They're interpreting the word of God through their experience, aren't they? Well, I know what God said. I know what Jesus said, that he's going to rise from the dead, but we know how things work. He was crucified. We saw the body. There is no way he's coming back. 
their experiences should be subordinate to and informed by God's word. And so he asked the question, he says, was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer? To suffer these things and to enter into his glory. What's the answer? Yes, it was necessary. The suffering of the Messiah is found throughout the Jewish scriptures. You can write some of these down if you're interested in looking them up. Psalm 22, Jesus says, I am poured out like wax and all my bones are out of joints. In Isaiah 52 and 53, that's the famous passage of the suffering servant. Until modern times, even uh, in Judaism, they recognized that this is talking about a suffering Messiah. It's not Jesus, they'd say, but it's probably talking about someone who's going to suffer as a Messiah. Zechariah 12.10, they looked on me whom they pierced. It's all through the scriptures. The Messiah is going to suffer. But verse 27, I think, is the most remarkable uh, part of this passage. It says, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Notice that Jesus could have revealed himself to these men. That's his goal, by the way. If you see it throughout the scriptures, you progress. His goal is not just to condemn these men. His goal is for them to come to that faith so that they would understand he is the Messiah and he's risen. And he could have done that in another way. He could have removed the blinders from their eyes with a snap of his fingers. He could have performed a miracle. He could have said, look at my side, look at my hands. But he didn't. Instead, he did what Abraham did in our account of the rich man and Lazarus. He points them to scripture. It says then, beginning with Moses. When it says Moses, the Jewish audience would have understood this. This means not just the story or the life of Moses. We're talking about the books of Moses. The, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And the prophets. That's the prophets. Later on in the passage, we won't read this part today, we won't get to it, but he also says he explains to them from the Psalms. So he goes through the whole Tanakh, the whole Old Testament, and he's showing them, here I am, here I am, here I am, here I am, here I am. Wouldn't you love to have been there? I would have loved to be there to, to hear where is he in all the Old Testament. And even though we don't know that, the Bible would be probably half a time thick, as, as thick as it is now if he did that because it's everywhere. We're not told, but we can make some educated guesses. Because shadows of the Messiah can be found in virtually every book in the Old Testament. Consider this. In Genesis, he is the seed of the woman who will crush Satan's head and reverse the curse. He is portrayed as the one who will be a blessing to all the nations through Abraham. He is the one who will, like Joseph and like Moses, he will come to his people Israel and be rejected the first time. And then when he comes to them the second time, he will be accepted by the nation. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb, and he is pictured in the tabernacle, the sacrifices, and the priesthood. In Leviticus, he, is, he and his work are presented in the Feast of Israel, Shabbat, Passover, Shavuot, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot. He's pictured as both the scapegoat and as the high priest. In Numbers, he is the star of Israel and the scepter of Jacob. He is the bronze serpent lifted up on Moses' staff, raised for those who would by faith simply look and live. In Deuteronomy, he is the prophet like unto Moses, as we talked about. 
In Joshua, he's pictured as the commander of the Lord's army. In Judges, he is the ultimate deliverer of Israel. In Ruth, he is the consummate kinsman redeemer. In Samuel, the books of Samuel, he's the great descendant of King David who will reign and rule from Jerusalem on the throne of David forever. In the books of Kings, he is the healer of the Gentiles. When the Jewish people want nothing to do with him, the Gentiles come and he heals them. In the books of Chronicles, he's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant made with David. In Esther, like Queen Esther, who was raised up to deliver her people Israel from the evil one, so will the Messiah. In Job, he is the redeemer who lives. In Psalms, he is the shepherd and the one who cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Proverbs, he is wisdom embodied. In Ecclesiastes, he is the one who gives life its meaning under the sun. In the Song of Solomon, he is the shepherd king. He's a descendant of King David and the ideal Israelite. In Isaiah, he is the suffering servant who dies as an atonement for the sins of Israel. In Jeremiah, he is the arbiter of the new covenant with Israel. In Lamentations, he is the righteous branch. In Ezekiel, he is the gatherer of Israel. In Daniel, he is the Messiah, the prince who will be cut off. In Hosea, he is the future restorer of Israel to their land. In Joel, he is the one who offers salvation to all mankind, Jew and Gentile alike. In Amos, he is the one who restores the house of David. In Jonah, like the prophet, he will be buried for three days and then come out again. In Micah, he is said to be born in Bethlehem. In Zephaniah, he is the judge of the nations. In Haggai, he is the chosen signet ring of God, destined to judge Israel's enemies. In Zechariah, he is the one who enters Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey and the one who will be pierced. And in Malachi, he is the messenger of the Lord. And we're just guessing. Imagine being there and hearing him go verse by verse through scripture. That was a half a day's journey. They had a lot of time to discuss these things. What are the disciples' responses? Look in verse 32. We're gonna come back to, to verse 28, but look at verse 32. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? You know, when I read that, I am convicted. Does my heart burn when I study God's word? When I read God's word, when I hear God's words preached, does my heart burn within me or is it kind of cold? Well, let's ask the Lord to change that if it's cold. Back at verse 28, it says, and they approached the village where they were going and he acted as though he were going further. More of these theatrics. This is a nonverbal invitation to the disciples. You want more? Because I'm going I'm to go if you don't want more. And what is their response in verse 29? But they urged him, saying, stay with us, for it's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. So they're responding positively to Jesus' message, aren't they? They're not saying, oh, you know what? Enjoyed your sermon, preacher, but got to go. No. They say, no, you come with us. Come on, uh, have dinner with us, something. We're going to have a meal, but you keep talking. And in verse 30, everything changes for them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, 
and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. What caused these disciples to recognize Jesus? Well, it's not stated, but it's so clear, isn't it? What happens? He breaks the bread, he hands it to them. They've just heard the word of God preached to them, and what do they see? Prince of Nails. And at that point, it all clicks. They finally get it. They put all the pieces together, the three years of ministry, all the prophecies that he just read to them, the miracles, the execution, the burial, the empty tomb, the burning hearts. It all makes sense, doesn't it? And then the response, as we saw in 34, is that their, their hearts burnt within them. Excuse me, verse 34 actually says, saying, they, they go to their friends and they say that the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They go to their friends and they say, you know what those ladies said to us today? It's true. You know how we know? We were just with him. Why is this text here? Why, is, why are these verses in the Bible? Isn't that ultimately the question? When we read scripture, we have to say, what's it here for? Why did God, if we believe in inspiration, which I think we do, we have to say, why did God choose to put this in the Bible? Why is it beneficial for me as a believer to read this? Again, doesn't matter what I believe about it, what it means to me, what, is, what was God's intent? Well, I'd suggest three points. First of all, God has no afterthoughts, does he? Was the gospel an afterthought to him? No. Your salvation was not an afterthought. My salvation was not an afterthought. The church is described in the New Testament as a mystery. Why? Because you don't see the New Testament, or excuse me, you don't see the church anywhere in the Old Testament. It all is about Israel. Was the church a mystery to God, though? No. He knew that the Jewish people would reject him, and he would take from two peoples, Jews and Gentiles, and he'd make them into one people called the church for this dispensation in which we live. And then what, he will, what will he do at the end of the time of the Gentiles? He takes the he takes the church out and then he turns back to Israel. It's all part of his plan. There are no afterthoughts. Secondly, the word of God ought to be our compass. If you are a believer, you have the privilege of not having to go this life alone. You have the revealed word of God. Imagine what these disciples felt. Remember when we began, when we were reading about them? They were bewildered. They thought, what has happened? This has been the worst Passover ever. And by the end, their whole lives change. Why? Because everything has been reoriented, not just through their experience, but through what? Through the word of God. It should be our compass. And then finally, and most important, I think, for us, is that we worship a resurrected Messiah. If we did not, we might as well be staying home today, shouldn't we? But he is alive. He is at work in our world. I gave an update in Sunday school about two people in this last year, elderly people. People set in their ways. They know their stuff. And yet God worked in their hearts. He opened their hearts to understand the gospel and they believed. He's at work. And it's because we worship a resurrected Messiah. And that should be of the utmost encouragement to us as Christians, shouldn't it? When we look at our world and we see how awful it is, it can be really tempting to think, 
what are we doing here? This isn't, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Is this ever going to get better? What's, what's God's answer? Yes. Why? Because of the resurrected Messiah who is our hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. You haven't left us orphans just to be adrift and have no direction. Quite the opposite. You saw that we were orphans and you sent your son to adopt us into your family. Father, I thank you because your word is our compass. Your word is the thing that makes sense of the world, that makes sense of ourselves. We see in it your faithfulness to the Jewish people, your faithfulness to Israel. And it inspires great confidence in us to look at the example of Israel, a sinful nation, still in sin, rebelling against you. And yet you have said that you will never cast them off. What hope that is for us as believers to know that you won't cast us off either for our sin. Lord, finally, we thank you that Jesus was not simply a prophet he was not simply a moral teacher. He's not simply a victim of Rome. But he is resurrected. He is alive. And it's because of that that we can face each and every day. And it's that message that you have not just suggested to us, but you have commanded to us as your church to take to the entire world to make disciples in your name to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. I thank you, Lord, for First Baptist of Cairo, for their love for your word, for the heart they have for missions in general, and specifically, Lord, that they have taken your command to take the gospel to Israel seriously and that they support missions to the Jewish people. They pray for your people, Israel. Father, I pray a special blessing that you would, be, you would give a special blessing to this church because they have chosen to obey Genesis 12, 3 to bless the nation of Israel even in their time of unbelief to take the gospel to them. We thank you for these things, Lord, and we rejoice in the resurrected Messiah and in his name we pray, amen. Amen.